0: Here's the host of the Talent Talk Radio Show, the founder and CEO of People G2,
1: Chris Dyer. Hey, good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for tuning in here to Talent Talk. And joining me is I have uh, two great guests, and not just great guests, but two guests named Brenda today. So we somehow ended up with two Brendas on the show at the same time, but uh, I'm, I'm sure they're going to have wildly different things to talk about, t- despite the commonality of their first name. So, um, you know, the, the intro kind of gives you a good idea of where we started, kind of where we look to start the show from, and, and really kind of the deeper... Understanding is that uh, you know I have the privilege of meeting uh, lots of fantastic people, especially in this world of human resources and talent and engagement. And I like to bring them together and have a conversation and ask them all the questions I would probably have asked them had I been sitting with them alone and, and maybe over a cup of coffee or a piece of pizza. And but then to give you that opportunity to hear the answers, and you also have the opportunity to to even participate. And I'll tell you more about that in a second. So, uh, Talent Talk. Happens every Tuesday, just about. Uh, I think we skip a few of those around the holidays, but just about every Tuesday, 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Tune In Network, you can get us live. But most people actually listen to us on the podcast or on uh, iTunes or through iHeartRadio um we've amassed a huge following the numbers jumped up to about 590,000 of you last week that came in had a really big jump uh, through iHeart uh last week so big thank you to everyone who shows up to the show regularly um and if you want to be a part of it right now you all you have to do is submit questions via Twitter you can send them uh, just type in that question. Add the hashtag talent talk. If you have room to add in the app People G Two, that really does help make sure we find it uh, live. And even if you can't do it live, you can always send it after the fact. I'm sure our guests and myself will be happy to keep the conversation going on Twitter uh, long after the show. So no matter when you when no matter when you actually hear the show, we'll be happy to do that. So. As I said, I have two Brendas today. My first guest will be Brenda Casper. She's a partner at Casper and Frank LLC. And then after the commercial break, we'll have uh, Brenda Williams, who is a, a veteran of the show. I think this might be her third time on the show. Um, and uh, she's a CEO at the Academy of Leadership Communication and a good friend of mine. Um, and But we'll get to her at the second half. So let's go ahead and jump in with our first guest, Brenda Casper. Brenda, welcome. Welcome to the show and thank you for being here. Hi,
2: Chris. Hey, thanks for having me.
1: So tell everyone a little bit about yourself and about your law firm.
2: Sure. So I am a, an attorney. I have been for nearly 20 years, and that entire time, my whole career, I've represented employers, so I only represent employers um, all facets of employment law. Um, I started practicing in 97. I started my own firm um, about two years ago with my partner, Lisa Frank, and Lisa has been at big firms in um, Southern California. I started practicing in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I've been in California for 11 years, I think, now.
1: So. So many of us that are in the industry or in HR certainly know about the, some of those nasty little plaintiff's attorneys. So we might label you one of the good guys then.
2: The good guys, um, absolutely. Right. I always say I don't do people.
1: <laughs> <laughs> You're there helping us, helping our companies, and uh, we appreciate that. So yeah, that's, that's cool. So you kind of went on your own two years ago. Um, I'm sure we'll kind of get to that in a minute. But maybe what, did, what made you kind of decide that employment law was the area of law that you wanted to focus on?
2: Yeah, so um, back in the day when I was um, in high school, I worked in a restaurant, and this is pre-internet days for those of you who didn't exist then. There was no Internet um, back in the 80s. And my restaurant had a rule that if they were not busy, you could not clock in. You had to be there. You had to sit in a booth, and they controlled you sitting there, but they didn't pay you because you couldn't clock in. And I remember I was probably all of 16 years old, and I was in Hayes, Kansas, where I grew up, and I was sitting there thinking, this can't be right. Like, this just can't be right. And that probably is what the inspiration was for doing employment law. Um, and then, of course, I have a whole host of other things over over the year I spent in the restaurant, right, including my interactions with cooks and some other things. Mm-hmm. And so I really approach my practice and my HR background with a compliance mentality. I think companies want to do the right thing, and I want to help them do the right thing. Um, and I also want to help them fight back against claims that have no merit, so I'm super comfortable representing employers because I truly believe they want to do the right thing.
1: So I guess the two-part question would be, is at that moment, back in Kansas, was it legal for them to have done that at that time? No. No, it wasn't. No. Okay, good.
2: No. So the, Fair
1: Labor, the big picture, Fair Labor Standards Act, in effect
2: since the 30s, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, you cannot control people and not pay them. Everybody's guaranteed minimum wage for the time they are under control.
1: Yeah. You know, and it's a hard mix because there are certainly, I think to your point, most, I would say most employers, most companies want to do the right thing. Yep. Um, yep. But there are those that don't. And whether yes, that's mm-hmm. because they're just mean mean people or they have some sort of financial, you know, burden or there's some mm-hmm. other, you know, sort of side tangenty thing that's affecting these poor decisions, they happen and they, they impact workers. Um, but it sounds like you're there to not only help companies with these sort of problems, but maybe also help them educating and, and help them stay ahead of maybe some of those things that they might think about doing if they have other pressures. Is that Would that be a fair statement?
2: Absolutely. And I also like to help companies, employers find practical solutions. So if you can't afford to pay people, what should you do? And certainly, you know, in 08 and even today, uh, we will get calls from clients who can't make payroll or they, you know, there are, there are financial hardships. What should we do? And so, you know, I pride myself on being able to help people in a tight spot. And the, the magic rule is don't have people work without pay. You can reduce salaries. You could pay people minimum wage. You have a ton of options. But the one thing you never want to get yourself in doing is having people work and not paying them. It's actually a crime in California, so it's not a smart thing to do.
1: Well, that's uh, that can be really dangerous then, yeah, especially mm-hmm. uh, if it if it's a, can be a criminal act. Well, you know, I, as a CEO and and through my work, I've seen a lot of companies fall into many, many pitfalls you know, around this area of that human capital management. So dealing with their workforce, it seems like it, the really uh, big ones and the really small ones seem to have some of the most unique challenges and in the middle is just a lot of muddy, you know, <laughs> weird stuff going on. But maybe what are some of the biggest areas that you find companies, you know, finding themselves in the most jeopardy? You talked a second about, you know, make, you know, make payroll, but are there more sort of dangerous areas, you know, from a compliance standpoint or other areas that you really look at?
2: Yeah, there, there are, and so I think what I'm about to say won't come as a surprise to anyone. So even bigger, right, than California, where I practice, I think the biggest area of noncompliance for employers across the country are wage and hour issues. Is it hours worked? Do you have to pay? Are they exempt? When do you have to pay? Are there meal and rest breaks? So there's that bucket. And then I think the other big bucket, and I'm going to probably just say the two biggest buckets, disability accommodation. And so if someone is having difficulty performing the job based on a medical issue, they're a newer employee, they may not be entitled to rights under leave laws, must you accommodate? And the answer is yes, and then the question is how far do you have to go? I think that's the other big risk area, and that is one of the highest claims right now. I think disability litigation has increased like over like 50 to 70%. Um, in the last 10 years.
1: And do you think some of what's feeding that is a larger issue about communication? Because I have found that it seems like companies say, well, I didn't know, or I, you, the, the employee didn't know, and so you sort of end up in this, you know, misunderstanding where the two groups in many cases think they're doing the right thing and one is clearly wrong because they don't have a good you know, haven't had that, those conversations.
2: Yeah. You know what? I'm going to agree with you and maybe say – I think I'm saying the same thing as you, but maybe not. So I think it's a lack of information. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to go really broad with that and say, number one, people don't – employers don't necessarily have the right information. Even when they have the right information, they don't go to the right place. And then I think the other issue, which is probably more of what you're saying, there is a lack of communication. Email is not communication. Um, surfing the Internet is not knowledge. So I, I think it's this co- this terrible combination of faulty information and failure to effectively communicate.
1: Uh, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, so often companies don't have the right information. And then they couple that with not sharing that information wow. with their employees, right? At least saying, this is right. what we believe to be true. Right. Here, here you go. This is what we're going to do to give those employees the opportunity to raise their hand and go, you know, I'm not sure if that's right. Or right. can we have a conversation about that? Because everyone's afraid to make a mistake. Everyone's afraid to be wrong. Everyone's afraid to get sued. And yet, it almost seems like by putting, you know, crawling into the fetal position to your desk is not really a good HR approach to, you know.
2: <laughs> it is not. It's funny you say that because I actually do a lot of presentations and one of them really had someone hiding under a desk. Yeah. Was, I don't do a lot of photos in my slides, but that was one of them. Never an option. <laughs> <laughs> Never an option. The one we all wish to do, but never, never an option.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I know you've worked as an HR director, so you have, you know, so you kind of know what it's like to be a strategic leader, you know, from that human resources component. Um, And as companies begin to experience growth and they start, you know, hiring more people and uh, processes change and, you know, there's sort of this rush of like just new stuff, new ideas, new thoughts, new procedures, and everyone's running around. Um, you're kind of thinking about all these different things, but then you need to avoid, you know, hiring to get bodies, in, you know, in the in the seats versus hiring the right people in the right position and kind of maximizing the potential. So. Are the things that you've seen work well, or suggestions you have on how people can do that? When that it's almost like you know letting water out of a dam, you know, and if yep. it, it just starts coming so fast, and you know, the companies, re- I find this where they trip up a lot is bringing uh, in the wrong people, right, that are going to be problem makers uh, yeah. in the situation. So I'll, I'll shut up and let you give us your great advice. <laughs> well,
2: I agree with you. You know what I find interesting, and I'm going to call. This is not a term I coined. It's a lawyer I worked with in a prior firm. People who have poor hiring are not identifying the, quote-unquote, plaintiff-in-waiting. So the hiring is the time where you need to have people with good judgment who know what they're looking for from a skill standpoint and trust their gut as to what they're seeing. So a plaintiff-in-waiting is someone who doesn't share information they're an information hoarder they don't have a great employment history they don't answer the questions that are asked I'm going to say a couple funny things here but this is what I see too they showed up late they had excuses for why they didn't come maybe they aren't dressed appropriately and I don't quite know what that means but you know what I'm saying there are a bunch of things that happen in an interview that people overlook They might love the person. They said one great answer, everything else was bad, they hire them. So I think that you should train management um, on some key things, and if those are the people who are making hiring decisions, you should talk about this issue. Now, I'm not saying rely on stereotypes and, you know, I'm saying something different than that, and you need to teach people the difference, right? There are legitimate things that you should consider as part of an interview, and it's more than just how they answer the questions. And, you know, don't hire them, because once you hire them, you're kind of stuck with them. So I, I think a smart thing is to pause, be prepared, and don't hire people where they have obvious issues that you shouldn't overlook.
1: Well, and we see this in our with our own clients. Uh, I'll leave names all. Out of it, but um, you know they will say, "Geez, I, I've, we've got this guy, and you know we just got his background check back, and it's terrible. And what are we going to do?" And I'm like, "Well, then, you know, if you feel like you have cause, and you can hire them, they go oh no, we already hired him.' You know, <coughs> we, we needed someone in that position so bad, we brought him on two weeks ago." And they couldn't wait, you know, a day or two for the background check, which you know you pull your hair about. Yeah, no and then,
2: I, I had that email yesterday, just so you know. Yeah. And big picture, again, I will protect the names of the innocent, <laughs> but part of the communication was the applicant had said, "No, I have no conviction." The applicant, or the the person who was hired two weeks ago, right, had convictions, and lo and behold, had lied two other times during the interview process.
1: Right. Yeah, it happens so often. And I just, you know, using that again, the analogy of the, 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 the water coming out of the, you know, kind of flooding the area when you're... You're busy. You're hiring. You're trying to get things mm-hmm. done. We start letting things slip. We start yeah. stop. We stop seeing the red flags. We start pushing them along faster than they should go because everything seems so hectic. And yet, yeah. I love that term. You then sort of creating or attracting these plaintiffs in waiting. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: you know, one other thing, if I may say this, and hopefully it's not too offensive to our guests listening, but executives need to own. Not pressuring the HR function to get bodies and seats. Because I find it is usually not the HR function bringing these people on, it's usually the executives really pressuring and pushing back and trying to cut corners and actually complaining about the time for hiring. And I find that unfortunate. You know, again, It would be smart because every industry is different. Every position might be different. But what is a fair onboarding time from recruiting to onboarding? That's a legitimate discussion to have.
1: Yeah. And it's two. I think it's a two-part two uh, problem. You have executives pushing because they 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 can see the problem. They're standing there, saying, we don't have these five people here. We are failing. We are losing money, clients, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then you probably have the front end too. You have people there who are working their butts off, and they need help. Yep. And they're screaming yep, that you know I can't handle all of this. And you're yep. at you're at their mercy. You may lose them, and then you're even even deeper yep. problem that you're losing good people that you have because they can't handle the work. And they don't have yeah. the support they need. So, yeah, it puts HR in the middle.
2: <laughs> it does. And so I, I do think, I mean, again, depending on the industry, the business, the situation, the startup nature, I think you can have strategic decisions to shortcut your process. I, I think that's fine as long as it's not illegal. But then you have to know you're going to have some blowback from all of that and just know it in advance and understand what it might be. Um, that way, it, you're not just flying blind and endlessly reacting.
1: Right. Absolutely. Well, do you find that large and small companies alike tend to run into the same types of issues when it comes to matters of talent management or, or are there sort of challenges more unique to their size?
2: I think that there are some unique issues based on size. So let's do the small entities. I think that maybe you don't have enough people to do it right Uh, maybe there's more of a startup mentality i find as time is progressing on me i'm horrified by a lot of the we'll call them startup smaller clients who don't know the law don't care about the law and think we're in an exciting industry everything's different it's the gig economy the rules don't apply to us Go forth and exist.
1: <laughs> right.
2: So I think any, and and I see that as more of the small startup um, with the entrepreneur spirit. It's always been there, right? There are variations I've seen throughout my career, but you know it seems worse nowadays that sort of people can justify um, that the rules, you know, everything's different. We're in a new tech, emerging technology, so we're different, and that's not a good. That's never. That doesn't work. It's not a legal defense. So I think a smaller company sometimes has that issue. Larger companies, I think, tend to have similar problems, but they're more, I'm going to do an end around, right? We're so rule-bound. It's awful. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm going to do my own thing. So I'm going to be this rogue entity here, flouting rules. So it it sort of might be the same results, but for different reasons.
1: Well, there's there's really kind of two... Um, is that blue market strategy book that came out that you know sort of create your own market i mean and that plays into people's minds and and then uber is certainly coming in and reworking and kind of disrupting the entire taxi environment and you can now say well in hindsight they are not in as many cities they are getting pushed out because of this you know the the rules and regulations like that but from most people's perceptions, they came in and did it different and, and did it well and survived and all of that. And so I, you're right. People come in and then at, from a people perspective, try to come in and do the same thing um, yep. as as well as being smaller that they hope, well, no one's going to notice me.
2: Right. Who, how will we be found out? And, <laughs> you know, I'm glad you mentioned Uber. I, I spoke at uh, the Sherm convention this year and did. What's funny about my presentation was it's the basics classification are you a contractor or are you an employee simple like simple stuff it's not simple let me say this it's not easy but it is simple nobody wants to believe it because of uber because of this belief that everybody's a contractor even though uber kind of lost its pants on that and i think the challenge is be innovative and that i do want companies to be innovative but you know what if your entire business model is based on an unlawful structure, you can't scale it. It's not gonna work. So there are other options to be innovative and creative. And and Uber's ending up there, just so you know. I mean they're sort of finding their way and they were fortunate to be big enough and but but, a, but, but you can do that, too, right? It doesn't mean, oh, I have to comply with the law, and therefore I can't disrupt. That's not true, actually. And I think a good employment lawyer and smart HR people and really great executives can really take care of all that. It, it, let me say it one different way. Take smart risks.
1: Yeah. And 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 that the only challenge in that is that you are assuming that people taking those risks are smart to begin with. So
2: that's the issue. <laughs> <laughs> that's the issue, right? And one other thing, you know, I've had client and you mentioned maybe in your introduction, you know, I've had clients say to me, if I have to pay people that way, then I'll go out of business. And the response really is then you don't have a viable business model. You really don't. Mm-hmm. Maybe in another state, you don't know, in California, and nobody wants to hear that. But you know what? That's a choice, right? That's a choice, and it's a risk, and you go from there with yeah, it. Right? Um, and you know, Uber's paying a lot of money, and fortunately, they can and still exist.
1: Yeah, that's the price you pay for having the the the, the beautiful produce and the sunshine if you live in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's like you said. If you can't do it here, then you have to go somewhere else and mm-hmm. and have have a better business model. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if we kind of look at the overall talent management piece, or we can even go broader than that if you want. But other one or two pieces of advice that you might you know, consistently give a company that they really need to start thinking about, or they need to hear. We could even reduce it down to you know things going on this year. What what are sort of the, sort of the hot topics of things that companies need to be thinking about and talking about?
2: Well, let me just say before I'll do the hot topics in the year in a second, but you know what I think is really valuable use of time if you do it right, is giving your executive team and your managers the right training to be effective. I'm a huge fan of that. And I'm not saying like hours and hours of worthless training where people are wasting their time, but I'm talking about really effective even small bite training on key topics. So if you really want people to manage employees, they should know about again a manager level knowledge, not HR knowledge, but wage an hour, leave of absence, disability accommodation, how to hire, how to fire, how to do performance reviews. So it's not even that massive of subject matter, but you should be training people on that. And you can overlay your culture in all of that. But they should know how to do the basics right.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely.
2: So, unfortunately, like the hot topics, right, for 2017, my firm's about to do its annual employment law update coming up in December. And, again, I mean, the hot topics really are wage and hour. That's kind of what I already said. I mean, if you don't pay people right or you don't manage them right, those are such expensive claims. They're so hot. They're only getting worse. Federal governments definitely, you know, recently more active. So people have to know how to do that right. And then again, I'll say, kind of disability accommodation and leave issues. Uh, your people should know just the basics
1: to do it right. And and, and what, what what do you what do you think it actually takes to get those type of people? That introductory type of, of uh, training? Is it, you know, a few hours with an attorney? Is it, you know, a half day seminar? I mean, what do you think is the, the entry point?
2: You know what I think it is? <clears throat> I really do think it could be as little as two hours a year. Because I think that most training time is wasted if it's not effective. So I don't think length of time is necessarily what you need. I almost, now let me say this too, it depends on the company, again, and the industry and the people, but I think it could be as little as two hours a year, mm-hmm. smartly allocated. Now, of course, in California, we have our every two years anti-harassment training of managers. I do have some clients who piggyback one hour of additional training on that every other year.
1: Right. Well, that's just smart. Yeah. If you already have them do it, mm-hmm. come come in. Yeah, Absolutely. Mm-hmm.
2: Because you've got you've got your captive audience, you know. The other thing that I just I just think you get, need to meet your people where they are. And for for my client, it's just so different, right? I've got research institution clients. Those. Classroom training is perfect, right? They want to cross-examine the lawyer. The scientists don't want to believe you. That's fine. Um, You know, depending, different industries, it's going to be a lot different. And, you know, some industries, I'm thinking the food industry, um, production environment, you need a different approach with people. Um, You need practical, information-based resources. And I'm always shocked, and I do a ton of manager training, For the majority of the training I do, people are hungry for knowledge. They want it, again, they do want to do the right thing. The majority do. I'm sure there are bad actors out there everywhere. But in my experience, people come up afterwards and they just want information.
1: Well, I want to make sure we ask you our our two last questions before we have to go here. And that first one is Is there a book that you're reading right now that you Um, might tell us about?
2: Oh, my gosh. So, on a funny note, I love history and biography. So I am in the middle of this book about Clementine Churchill, like um, Winston Churchill's wife, and it's amazing. It's really, it's really interesting. Um, I, I don't. I do usually do presidential history, but I had to take a little break from that right. based on <laughs> the election, etc. Right. So I'm really enjoying it.
1: Well, it sounds like an interesting read uh, for our users to check out. Don't forget, we will have that on our blog as well, and we'll list all that out uh, in case you don't. Uh, didn't have a chance to jot that down. Uh, and, and last question is, how can people get a hold of you, learn more about you and about your, your firm, Casper and Frank? Sure. So
2: um, you can go to our website, which is um, casperandfrank.com, or just Google Casper Frank. It's with a K, by the way. It's K-A-S-P-E-R. And my email is brenda at casperfrank.com.
1: Well, Brenda, thanks for being our first Brenda of the show today. Um, Really appreciate you coming on and learned a lot. And hopefully we'll have you come back at some point and give us an update.
2: Perfect. Thanks for having me.
1: All right. We'll be right back after this quick commercial break with our second Brenda, Brenda Williams.
2: higher.
3: Imagine buying a newspaper and discovering that the news you're reading is six months old. There isn't much that stays the same for six months, and the same thing goes for background checks. In a time when so much outdated information is being passed around, it's good to know that People G2 offers something different. At People G2, we provide today's intelligence, not yesterday's news. Our value-added approach offers you a fully FCRA-compliant solution that includes up-to-the-minute information. By combining industry-leading technology with old-school human investigation, People G2 is able to give you information that is accurate right now, delivered quickly to our online system, or integrated with your HR system. So ask yourself, are you comfortable working with old news, or are you ready for a different kind of background check company? Visit PeopleG2.com or call 800-630-2880. That's 800-630-2880 or PeopleG2.com.
1: Welcome back to the Talent Talk Radio Show. Don't forget, you can visit talenttalkradio.com or find us on iHeart or iTunes. We're just, we're everywhere. So, and we also would love to have you join the conversation. You can send any of your questions live right now to uh, at peopleg2. Use that hashtag talenttalk. Or even if it's after the show, we're more than happy to keep the conversation going there on Twitter uh, with anything you may have to say or, um, or even suggestions for the show or guest suggestions, whatever it may be. We're happy to, to uh, interact with you there. So, check us out. All right. Next up, we will have uh, Brenda Williams, who's live with me here in the studio. And I think this is her third time. I think it might make her the the most senior guest. or I don't know if that's the right word. Most, expe- <laughs> yeah. most experienced guest. Yeah, be that's right. better. That's better. There we go. <laughs> um, and she's, with, she's the CEO of the Academy of Leadership Communication. Um, and so, Brenda, welcome back again.
4: Well, thank you, Chris. It's fun to be here again with you.
1: Yeah. So why don't you tell one a little bit about yourself who hasn't heard you on the show before. You'll probably pick up where uh, and I are friends, which is why she, she gets to come on the show so much and because she does such great work uh, with her company and we love to have her on. So give everyone a little update on, on what you're doing right now.
4: Okay, great. Well, just a little history as to why I'm so passionate about emotional intelligence and mastering the art of communication. I'm from a small town back east in Warwick, Rhode Island, where there was zero emotional intelligence. I don't even think it was in the dictionary back then. Right. And I grew up in a world that was unfiltered. And like many, nobody really taught me how to communicate. I learned by observing. (laughs) And I wasn't always observing the best people. (laughs) so as I moved into the business world, I started recognizing the challenges that myself and many others have when it comes to communicating.
1: Mm-hmm. And so how are you then turning that passion into what do you sort of what are the, the average or the normal things that you're doing with your Academy for Leadership Communication? OK,
4: well. Over the last 25 years, I worked in the business world, and I was providing consulting services. So I worked with people at all levels, and their challenges and issues directly related to their ability to communicate. So when I started seeking my purpose, I realized that coaching and mentoring was part of it, and I'd been doing it for years in corporate America. And I left because I wanted to be able to share that message with people and help them become more effective at communicating. That's how I founded the academy and I found that just because people want to be better doesn't mean they will unless they learn new skills and tools and become Mm self-aware.
1: So you said you've been a coach, and I know you've been doing it for over 20 years and worked with thousands of individuals and all sorts of different organizations. So what do you feel then is your kind of the greatest changes over time in in leadership philosophy i mean i'm going to imagine it's a little bit different than when you started your career in business to where maybe what you're kind of seeing now so what does that kind of look like
4: well i'm noticing that you know 10 15 years ago the words emotional intelligence were just coming into the forefront by the father of daniel goleman who Mm -hmm. i consider the person who really brought it to the world and people looked at it as the woman fuzzy I see today, with all of the, the workplace changing, it's the first time we've had so many different generations working together. And the communication styles are very, very different. So now companies are a lot more prone to opening up their eyes to saying, we've got some big challenges. Right. And people need to be able to talk and communicate more effectively in order to have collaborative, innovative organizations.
1: Well, it seems like the warm and fuzzy people have been talking about this for a while. And then the people who are more fact-based, science-based, or engineering personnel, whatever they may be, suddenly got all of this research that came in from a neuroscience that said what the fuzzy people were, right? The warm yes. and fuzzy people were saying just in a more, in a different way, but it was the exact same thing. And that, that's what I've really seen an explosion in the last five, six years of actually really thinking about this stuff, talking about emotional intelligence, talking about positivity, mm-hmm. all these things that was like, yeah, 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 hippie stuff. Lo and behold, that you know the science is sort of backing all this up.
4: That's very true, and there is a part of our brain that processes our emotions and our feelings that's directly tied to how we respond and react to situations. So people are more aware of it now that they can tie it back to science, so that they can speak to all audiences. And people are saying, "Yeah, I can see from from my perspective, whether it's a science standpoint or just the relationship feeling standpoint, uh, how important it is." I was just speaking at the SoTech conference conference in Long Beach and I talked to a lot of technical people over the weekend and they would say I consider myself an introvert and it's been challenging me in my career. So there's many many different ways that communication makes a difference. Whether you're leading people from an executive and a management standpoint, you need to create a vision and get them to follow you. You need to create that trust and respect or it's someone who wants to get promoted in a company and they're not comfortable expressing what they bring to the party and how good they are and their strengths and their assets. And uh, sometimes it's just dealing with difficult people because we have some of those in the world too.
1: Right. So, I mean, what does emotional intelligence look like? I mean, I don't know if we can better define it or maybe you can give us an example of someone who is really emotionally intelligent, maybe then someone who's not. What does that look like? (laughs) Well,
4: well, In a minute, I can tell you what emotional intelligence is. There's four quadrants. And the first one is creating self-awareness. And most often, we don't even know how we're coming across to people. Right. Right? So that's really the first thing. Secondly is, once you get self-aware, how do you manage that? Because we all have habits and default zones, and we're under stress and pressure. We react a certain way. And it's not always the way we want to react. Then secondly, I'll talk to people that will say, well, I've got that down, but I work with a lot of those difficult people. And then you have to look at the social awareness. Who are the people you work with, interface with? Sometimes they're in your family. You might be married to them.
1: Right,
4: right. <laughs> and other times, how do you how do you deal with them more effectively and manage that relationship? So it's really the relationship management that comes into play because as two people come into the party with different thoughts, different beliefs, different core values. And different communication skills.
1: And so maybe someone who's really struggling in this area, do they tend to kind of fall into a particular category? Are they not having success in their job? Are they tending to just not have any friends? Or anybody wants to be around them because they're just... You know, mean or or I mean, how does that sort of manifest itself? Do you see that on a consistent basis? Well, what's
4: fascinating as a coach, I hear all the internal stories. Like in the real world, we see people walking around with their facades and their egos, so we don't really get to see what they're really thinking. As, right. as a coach, I get to hear people's innermost thoughts and feelings, and it shows up in all different personality styles. If you're an introvert, you're not expressing yourself. If you're a people pleaser, you're saying yes all the time, and you're not getting your needs met. I just spoke with someone like that today if you're a driver controller achiever and you're great at getting things done but you're blowing everybody out of the water with your approach um All of them have their challenges around communication. Some are avoiding situations because they're uncomfortable having difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. Others blast people with those types of conversations. So really, it's all ends of the spectrums, different personality styles. And it shows up in a lot of key areas, which is what I'm excited about today is my newest program, which is Emotions and Behaviors in the Workplace. And this is a program that was founded by a group of psychologists, business psychologists out of England that have spent 20 years researching businesses and individuals, coaching and um, being the business psychologist. And what are the eight key areas that you have to target in your emotions and behaviors in the workplace to be successful? So what's really fascinating is they've been able to take the big spectrum of, of emotional intelligence and narrow it down into the eight key areas. And it shows up in all of our lives, no matter who we are.
1: Right. And, and so if, let's say you go through this program and you, you come out on the other side a, a better person, a better communicator, more emotionally intelligent. What does that person look like? Well, what do you sort of expect that that person might um, be experiencing or seeing in their lives that would certainly have changed?
4: Well, I had a client recently who came to me um, several months back. And I always show a before and an after picture. And he says, I'm the before and I need to be the after. (laughs) So on the before side, he was having challenges communicating with people. People were not delivering what he needed. They weren't returning his phone calls as often. There were frustrations in the relationships. He wasn't really deeply connected to anyone. And he was having a lot of stress and anxiety. On the after side, which is really amazing to watch the transition, um, he started building deeper relationships, connecting with people people started returning his phone calls and coming to him with their challenges so he would know about the problems ahead of time. Mm -hmm. And then he started building uh, more empathy for people, which is one of the eight key areas that are important to look at for all of us.
1: And that's hard for a lot of people to do is to have empathy for other people.
4: It's one of the hardest, especially for the people that are the most successful. Because mm-hmm. a lot of the people that I meet at the top that are the most successful have been the drivers and the achievers. And they have a checklist. And they have... They're very results-driven. And when you find people slowing you down or not delivering, your first go-to zone isn't, oh, what happened? Right. <laughs> your first go-to zone is, what the hell? I need to get this done. Right. And so taking a step back for the, the driver achievers and saying, hey, I need to have some compassion and empathy. I really need to understand and hear this person out. Even if you don't agree with them, you have to have some level of empathy. And that's one of the eight key emotions, especially for the people that are high on decisiveness and motivation. Then you have people on the opposite end that have too much empathy, and that can slow them down. Right. So I teach people how to walk the scale in these eight key areas and how to be aware of where they show up and all the other people they have to interact with. And what's the most effective approach for the situation?
1: I remember reading a really interesting article, and I'm blanking on the title of it now, but it, one of the sort of uh, components of it was is that really successful people find a way to sort of get rid of that negative energy or negative people in their lives. But I thought you know, the kind of counter to that was, is, well, then if somebody along the, in your life has a problem or has an issue, if you just cut it out and you ignore it and you just keep going with your doesn't make you very empathetic, right? It doesn't make you somebody who can maybe help out somebody in a company who's having a hard time. Maybe suddenly your friend's going through a divorce. Well, I'm just not going to talk to you until you're positive again. I mean, that's not, you know, it's not really what I think most of us would choose to do, right? So there has to be kind of that balance. And it sounds like what you're talking about is trying to find that balance in, in within those eight different areas.
4: Yeah, the balance is important. And they do say, and I agree, you are the average of the top five people you spend most of your time with. But when you're working in a business world or you might have certain family members that you just can't avoid, whether it's a client, a coworker, or a peer, sometimes you're going to have difficult people or negative people you have to deal with. So the goal behind the work I do is to teach people, how do you show up differently and not react to that negativity? How do you be the bigger better person that drips the positivity and teaches and mentors and coaches them to come up to your level versus you go down to their level mm-hmm. which is happens a lot. People will start blaming and pointing the finger and then it turns into arguments or avoidance in the workplace.
1: And so how does you know all of this kind of feed into the overall idea of leadership within an organization. So you know, if, if people are struggling with this, if they're not cohesive as an organization, how does it start to impact leadership overall?
4: It's a big deal. Uh, the EBW program I have, the Emotions and Behaviors in the Workplace, actually ties six leadership styles directly to the scale. And there's an assessment, so you can really find out your, your primary leadership approach. Most people use one or two leadership styles. There's six major leadership styles that are very important to use at different times mm-hmm. so once you become aware of commanding leader which is like the least uh, well liked in the world um the commanding leader is someone who says it's my way or the highway this is how it should be done that's not how you really create loyalty and respect and trust amongst your team long term but sometimes you're in situations where that's mandatory right Right, Then you've got the um, coaching leader. If you've got younger generations in your company and you want to help mentor and evolve them and get them to the point where they can make their own decisions, you need to coach them. So each leadership style will fall into these eight scales and you get to find out where you show up and then decide when is it most effective to use this approach and who are the people around me that this is the best style to use with them so as an example if you are a visionary leader on the scale you are high on influencing and motivating and making decisions but you are very uh, left on the on the left side of the scale when it comes to rules and structure because you want to give people the opportunity to do it their way versus Mm -hmm. tell them how to do it right Coaching is different. You're guiding people to their own decisions versus telling them what to do. So when it comes to decisiveness, you'll fall left on the scale because you're not going to make the decisions for them. Very important piece if you're running an organization and it grows because you have to get people to be able to step up to the plate. And I've worked with companies that have brought me in saying, our managers and supervisors are afraid to make decisions. They're hesitating. They don't want to take the risk or the responsibility. How do I get them to step up and make more decisions? So helping people create the self-awareness of when is it best to be on the left side of the scale and when is it best to be on the right side of the scale.
1: And very often it's, it's very situational. Are you in a position to be that leader, to make those decisions? Do you have that authority? I mean, that's a big component. Are you in work? Are you in a volunteer situation? Are you coaching a team? I mean, these are all different leadership sort of uh, c- capabilities that someone may have. And I always find with a like, volunteer situation or a coaching situation, when I say coaching, I mean like kids or sports, things like that. It, my approach tends to be directly reflective of that person. Mm-hmm. So if that person needs a kick in the butt, I'll give them a kick in the butt. Do they want me to be nice and, you know, empathize with them? Well, I can do that, you know, so you can be much change it. But with work, I find that that doesn't work. It has to be find the right person who has the right fit into our organization and really kind of is that um, fits right in with what everybody else is doing because it's really hard to make a change as a leader for one person and it's really hard to get that one person to make a big drastic change to fit in the organization. Have you found some success in helping people do that though?
4: Well, I'm finding that you're always dealing with different types of people, and that has been the biggest challenge I've seen over the years. So learning to modify your style to each person, and it can change day to day. Mm -hmm. You might have someone who's on top of their game, always delivering, and then they have a death in the family, or they have a divorce. So one leadership style will not work with, with each person all the time. It's what's the project, what's the situation, what's the challenge, how quickly do you need to make a decision? When you have a team of people in a long period of time where you can coach and you have the the luxury of waiting for them to come to their own conclusions Mm -hmm. and maybe even make a few mistakes along the way, then you take the coaching and the visionary leadership style. But if you're in a very challenging situation that demands quick results, it has to happen now, it's time-sensitive, and you don't have the staff that can be coached at that point, you need to become the commanding leader, right?
1: Right. Absolutely. You have to pick and choose those things. And it sounds like having the abilities to implement several different leadership styles and be quick on your feet. I mean, that's, a, I guess, a leadership style in its own, or at least a quality
4: well, the, the most important piece for the leaders out there to recognize is to open up your eyes and, and really do a true assessment as to what type of leadership style and communication style you're using. Uh, most people that take the EBW self-assessment find that they lean towards one or two that they're comfortable with. When you can learn the other four and just be able to shift uh, yourself and your approach on the fly, depending on where you're at and who you're talking to, you become much more successful, much more productive, and you build teams of people that are more loyal, uh, that respect you, and that will be there for you when the going gets tough.
1: Now, everything you said makes a lot of sense, and it, it certainly would apply very well for a leader, as long as they're li- are good listeners. Because if they're not hearing what's happening, right, they're not going to know to do these things. So can you talk a little bit about how listening kind of plays into all this? Well, listening is crucial.
4: Uh, I can't tell you how many people I coach that think they show up one way and they think they're great listeners. And I do this in my workshops with my clients is I'll have people uh, do role playing around active listening. Now, active listening is a skill we hear through our ears, but active listening requires several things to occur. And the first one is to let your own beliefs check them at the door Mm -hmm. because not everybody believes the way you do. Right. Or I do. Right. So you got to put your beliefs aside. You've got to stop making interpretations and assumptions. You have to ask the right questions. You have to mirror back and paraphrase. So when you ask someone, you know, what did you mean by that? Can you tell me more about that? And then you say, what I'm hearing you say is, or what I think I just heard was, we very seldom do that. Mm -hmm. So often we're listening and we're making interpretations and we already have our opinion formed or we have our agenda in mind of what should be done. And our way is the right way.
1: Oh, yeah, of course.
4: (laughs) So very, very important to not only look at those types of things, but also take a moment to pause and uh, look at the body language. Look at the tone of voice. What's not being said?
1: Right. And if you don't understand, I'm one of my favorites. I learned from our VP of Sales, Jim Hall. He he often says, "Can you say that differently?" And it's amazing when you ask someone to say the same thing in a different way. You pick up more information. You get a clarification. You maybe even sometimes help them clarify because maybe they're not telling you exactly how it need to be told. But yeah, asking those good questions, open ended questions, and can be it can be pretty pretty big. I think leaders themselves need to have that great ability to ask questions Good and questions it's
4: really fascinating because I love it when I do my workshops and I put people in front of the room to do the active listening role plays and I've worked with people at all levels some people been in the business world 30 and 40 years and very seldom does somebody get up there and rock it. Right. <laughs> they stumble because they're not comfortable with asking that many questions and digging deeper and really listening to what the other person's thinking. And you know what happens when we don't do that? We squash creativity, new ideas, concepts. We're not understanding better approaches. And this happens a lot between the generations. Right. Right people that have been there 20 30 years this is the way we've always done it this is the way it should be done who are you you're the new young bird you don't know and you know if we open up our eyes to listening and learning from each other throughout the generations and use that active listening we can learn a lot from each other so that goes to both sides of the fence
1: yeah and i've actually even recently seen the opposite where the older generation didn't want to give up any of the information that the uh, the younger generation needed they just said we'll give the younger generation you know all the answers you tell us but what are you supposed to do? And, and but they kind of kept all of that knowledge for themselves. So sort of kept it captive, you know, from from everybody. Um, had to get everyone talking, right? Well, what do they need to know to be able to give you their good good suggestions and being creative and thinking about new things? So. Well,
4: and, and encouraging them to coach and mentor the younger generations, right? Right. Some people are afraid to lose their jobs. You know, been there 20, 30 years, the younger crew's coming in, and they're fearful. So there's a lot of fear that I help remove inside organizations. But when you can get them all on the same page and excited to work together and realize we all have something to bring to the party, and we, if we become more connected and we build better relationships, the game changes inside an organization.
1: Yeah, absolutely, especially the more you can get people talking, get those gen- different generations working together. It is huge for sure. Well, one of our favorite questions to ask, and hopefully you have another great answer for us, is what What are you reading right now?
4: <laughs> I knew you would ask that since That's you right. have book clubs, and this is a great one you should consider. Brene Brown, mm-hmm. she's written three books, and yep. her most recent one is Rising Strong.
1: I think, I think we have had a few people in the last few weeks bring her up, because her name has come up, and Daring Greatly certainly is the one that pops out of my mind that uh, I, I really enjoyed reading. But, uh, but, yeah, it sounds like another great one we could add to it. She's a she's great.
4: She's amazing.
1: Yeah. i was fortunate to see her speak at an Ink conference one time. Didn't know who she was, hadn't heard of her at that point. Mm-hmm. And she came out and started speaking, and I go, oh, wow, okay. Got her book, and then come to find out everyone knew who she was. I was just the one who hadn't, you know, I was late to the party
4: (laughs) well i love her three books because the first one starts with really learning and knowing yourself and the second one is being open authentic and real and the third one is recognizing that if you push yourself out of your comfort zone to do greater things there's going to be times we rise and there's going to be times we fall right and it's all about how do you get back up and keep reaching for your greatness
1: well you mentioned a lot of you know fantastic things today we talked about a lot of different topics and things that leaders and, and anybody in an organization might want to think about, but if there was maybe one or two things that you think someone should have definitely remembered or maybe even written down, what, what would that be? Hi,
4: emotional intelligence. It's really the topic that I think is crucial to our happiness and success in life. So if you don't know about emotional intelligence, I encourage you to learn about it. Uh, you can always reach out to me. You can visit my website. So I'd like to put out some information uh, for people to be able to learn more.
1: Fantastic. So how can people do that? How can they learn more about you and uh, get more information about the Academy for Leadership Communication?
4: Well, they can call me at 714-283-1186. Again, that's 714-283-1186.
1: Your accent comes out so much when you say numbers. It's so funny. (laughs) It's like like the one time I go, whoa, oh yeah, I forgot. She didn't grow up from around here.
4: (laughs) I told you. And then the other one is visit my website www.academyforleadershipcommunication.com. dot com
1: Fantastic. Well, we certainly suggest everyone does that. Uh, thank you so much for being back on the show again, and we'd love to have you here. Uh, and also so to our other Brenda earlier in the show, Brenda Casper, uh, thanks out to her as well. Uh, and to everyone who tuned in to listen, uh, next week we will have uh, Jim Glantz, the vice president uh, and head of talent development for the wonderful company, and then Stefan uh, Wizenbach. I probably have messed someone's name up by now, the founder and chief engagement officer at uh, engagement. Multiplier. So until then, do what you love and show the world how talented you can be today.
0: You've been listening to Talent Talk Radio, brought to you by People G2.